This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This episode of the Science Podcast is brought to you by Atlassian, makers of collaboration software that lets teams work and communicate better together. See how Jira, Confluence, HipChat, and Bitbucket give your team everything you need to organize, discuss, and complete shared work. Atlassian works to help teams large and small ascend to new heights to create what's next. Visit Atlassian.com. Atlassian, helping teams everywhere team up to create what's next. Atlassian.com. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 10th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Brian Saruna talks about a new approach to understanding the development of spinal defects in the most common type of scoliosis. And news intern Patrick Monahan is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Patrick Monahan, an intern for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on anti-racing stripes. I heard that title or tagline in a meeting, and I just was like, we're going to use that. Uh, Patrick, this is actually a story you wrote. Why don't you start us out by introducing the animal at the center of this? This is a five-striped skink. Yeah, so I've never seen a five-lined skink. They are all over the eastern U.S. The thing about them is they have these stripes running down the front of their body and their head, and they have these bright blue tails. And it turns out that's actually pretty common in a lot of lizards. So I have seen rainbow skinks, which look exactly the same. So it's sort of a, if you've seen one, you've seen them all sort of situation. Yeah, I've seen one in Maryland, and it did not drop its tail. So that's one of the things that it does. What is dropping its tail by it? Well, it buys it another day to live. So (laughs) if you get nabbed on the tail by a bird, and you have the ability to just pop it off, well, then you can run off. Bird is distracted, presumably. And it has a snack, too, right? it has a snack, exactly. So this new paper looks at how the skink stripes, so not the blue tail, but the five stripes, may trick predators looking for a skink lunch. But they didn't use a typical skink predator like a bird. They used people? Yeah. It's expensive to go out in the field, and you have to deal with really unpredictable animals, and grad students are a lot more predictable (laughs) and cheaper. So they had graduate students play a game on touchscreens where little rectangles representing lizards would zip across the screen. And these rectangles had different patterns on them. And this let researchers test how different patterns would change how participants saw motion. Right, and they were looking specifically at 
stripes, right, that kind of represented these animals. What did they see when they were just trying to catch, you know, with their finger, the striped foxes? Yeah, the researchers told the students to press on the head, which is what you would do if you're, you're trying to get the whole lizard. You want to go for the kill. So they said press on the head, and participants were way more likely to miss the head and hit the tail instead when it was striped versus when it was a different pattern. Hmm. They actually perceived their speed as different because they had these stripes that were parallel to their path. That's right. And actually, the researchers did a second experiment just to see how that would work. What they found was that participants were actually seeing these ones with stripes as moving more slowly. They did narrow in on a number here. The striped boxes were perceived as a certain percentage slower than other pattern. Uh, Is that really a meaningful number? Yeah, I mean, it was only by 5%, but when these things are moving really quickly and they're pretty small, 5% can actually be a pretty big deal. Are they going to look at four-striped skinks next? (laughs) You know, there actually is a four-striped skink and they have the exact same pattern, so in a way they already have looked at it. But they are looking at how these patterns might change lizard evolution as a whole. It might be that these patterns let them be in new habitats and it could just change the way they evolve and develop new species. Now it's time to head over to the Indonesian island of Flores where the first Homo floresiensis specimen was found. This was back in 2004. Uh, They're probably more familiar to you as hobbits, which is the nickname for these ancient humans that look to be very small. Adults are only about one meter tall. The hobbit's bones were dated to about 60,000 years ago and were uncovered in 2004. It's been over 10 years. Patrick, what's been happening on Flores? Ever since that discovery, they've been looking for other evidence of these hobbits. And they managed to find more hobbits at that same site from the 2004 discovery. And they found a bunch of animal bones and tools. But they were never able to dig up a human fossil from any other site in the island. But finally, over 70 kilometers away, they just found another tiny human. And when you say found a tiny human, how much of a tiny human did they find? It's just a bit of jaw and a couple of teeth, not a whole lot. Okay. Well, what can we tell from such a small sample? There's a ton of debate out there. I mean, were the 2004 samples really just diseased modern humans? Where where they fall in the lineage if they are descended from a common ancestor? All that stuff. Can any of this be resolved from a little piece of jawbone and some teeth? It turns out from the size of this jawbone, they can tell that this new specimen is even smaller than the hobbit was. By dating it, they can tell it's 700,000 years old. So which that's is a lot older. It's a lot older than the hobbits, yeah. That's kind of shocking. So it's smaller and older than the specimens found in 2004. What does that mean for theories on where they came from and how they're related to us? Well, it seems if these things have been around for hundreds of thousands of years that the idea that they were just diseased humans doesn't really hold a lot of water anymore. And so it seems this really is a separate species that just evolved to be small when it got on this island. So there's this idea called island dwarfism, where species on islands get smaller over time because there's just not as many resources. I have a feeling this is not resolving the debate on this topic and that people are still going to be wondering whether or not this is enough evidence at this point. I don't think so. It's a little bit. It's just this jaw and a couple of teeth, and they're going to keep on looking for more of these specimens and really make sure that they know that this is a hobbit or something closely related to it. Lastly, we have the tale of the Mechanical Turk, or Turks. Mechanical Turk is a little-known offshoot of Amazon, originally designed to harness crowds of humans to help computer algorithms learn. 
These crowds of Turkers have more recently been harnessed for online psychology experiments in a big way. Patrick, give us some of the big numbers. Sure. Well, Amazon says about 500,000 people use Mechanical Turk to make money by doing small tasks. That's a really big group of participants for someone who wants to do research. So in 2015, over 1,100 papers were published using subjects drawn from Mechanical Turk. That's up from just over 60 in 2011. That's a pretty big expansion. And why has the field been headed this way? What's the appeal of online participants? Well, it's a lot faster than trying to round people up in real life. At a university, you're trying to get these undergraduates to do an experiment. But with Mechanical Turk, the people are already there. You just have to give them a task to do. Plus, it's a really big group. And Amazon says it's a really international group as well. So that's better when you're doing psychological experiments. You want to big and diverse subject pool. But of course, there's more to the story than, yay, cheaper, faster studies. What are some of the problems with using Mechanical Turk for research? Well, researchers did an experiment where they could see how many different people are actually doing these experiments on Mechanical Turk. It's based on this idea in ecology, where if you want to figure out, say, how many fish are in a lake, you catch a few and you mark them and you put them back. And then later you try and catch them again And depending on how many of those marked ones you get back, you can tell how big the whole population in the lake is. So they did something a little bit similar with user IDs in Mechanical Turk. And they found out at any given time, only about 7,300 people are willing to do experiments on Mechanical Turk, not 500,000, which is what Amazon said. And most of them are in America, so it's not as international as they thought. Another problem that's come up is that at the end of the day, these people are getting paid a really low hourly wage, about Four to eight dollars an hour, which some people say isn't fair. We got not quite the diverse crowd that we thought before. We have suppressed wages, and then there's also this issue of if we can tell whether or not these people are uh, who they say they are. On top of that, a couple of sites have built layers for psychological research: Turk Prime and SciTurk, which aim to make the system easier to use for scientists. So it's being built upon by people, and it's kind of getting integrated into the scientific process here. What about the idea of building a whole new system that's a better fit for these scientific purposes? Well, it's kind of scary for researchers, the idea that a whole research platform would be dependent upon a big corporation. I mean, at any point in time, Amazon could say, we don't want to run this anymore or we want to change something about it. So that's one idea is that researchers might want to just make a platform of their own where they can find people and not have to be at the whim of a big corporation. Okay, Patrick, what else is on the site this week? Well, Sarah, we have one study that confirms a 200-year-old story that electric eels jump out of the water to shock their predators. And another showing that humans had already made it into America by the time glaciers in Canada started to melt. And on Science Insider, our policy section, we have a story on the U.S. Senate's approval of a bill to overhaul chemical safety laws in the U.S. and another about a new proposal to build the human genome from scratch. Uh, Be sure to check these out on the site. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, Sarah. Patrick Monahan is an intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. One of the best things about working at Science and on the podcast especially is that I get to read and talk about new scientific ideas every day, every week, basically. And I think a lot of people who listen to the show have the same mindset. They want to keep learning. They're lifelong learners. They're students right now. And that's why I think our listeners will love the Great Courses Plus video learning service. 
The site includes unlimited access to thousands of videos, and I'm talking many, many courses on all different topics, many videos within those courses, and they're taught by top professors from all over the country. And just for Science Podcast listeners, the Great Courses Plus is offering a free trial to watch hundreds of these videos, no cost. I want to especially call out the course called The Inexplicable Universe. This is taught by a lot of people's favorite scientist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. And as usual, he takes some of the universe's biggest mysteries and explains them in a very approachable way. Well worth watching. Sign up today, and as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get one month free, and you can watch as many lectures as you want. Make sure to check out The Inexplicable Universe from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Sign up now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash science. Brought to you from WHYY in Philadelphia, the NPR member station that brings you fresh air with Terry Gross, the pulse goes behind the doors of operating rooms into the lab with some of the world's foremost scientists and explores the history behind life-changing innovations to uncover the unexpected in the far corners of health and science. From tranquilizing chairs to shackles, the June 17th episode of The Pulse traces the development of mental health care in the United States through a visit to the nation's first chartered hospital, still in operation today. If you love the science podcast, check out The Pulse. To hear more about the U.S.'s first chartered hospital and other unexpected stories in health and science, look for The Pulse on your favorite podcast app. The scoliosis check has become a hallmark of adolescence. Uh, Now, the reason we all get this slightly awkward but pretty harmless test done in the school's nurse's office is twofold. Scoliosis is incredibly common, affecting about 3% of the population, and it tends to show up in the early teenage years. So we know scoliosis happens kind of often, actually, and when. But what we don't know is the how and why. Brian Saruna is here to talk about his group's research into a completely new take on the development of this disease. Brian, what exactly is scoliosis? Well, scoliosis simply uh, refers to a deformity or an unnatural bend in the spine. And it can be caused by uh, multiple different factors. There can be physical defects in the vertebrae or the bones of the spine. When this happens, it's called congenital scoliosis. And it can also be caused by defects in the formation or movement of muscles surrounding the spine. And this is called neuromuscular scoliosis. However, the majority of human spine curvatures or scoliosis, and this is uh, upwards of 80%, arise in otherwise healthy individuals for no known reason. And this is termed idiopathic scoliosis, which is the focus of our study. Now, as you mentioned, idiopathic scoliosis typically presents in adolescence during periods of rapid growth, and it is incredibly common, about 3% of the population. Nevertheless, we know very little about it, and as a result, treatment options are very limited. What is a typical treatment uh, for scoliosis, idiopathic scoliosis? Right now, it's really just monitoring. If a curve becomes severe, children might be put into a rigid cast to prevent further curve progression. So this involves a, a cast which is worn 23 hours a day throughout adolescence, and that's just to prevent further progression. If the curve is very severe, uh, you will then require invasive surgical corrections. 
Those are both pretty terrible options for a teenager. Let's just talk a little bit about the background here. Why is the mechanism for something that's so common been so hard to pin down? Well, it's widely believed that idiopathic scoliosis is a complex genetic disorder. So there are many different genes and combinations of mutations that could contribute to spinal curvatures. Now, human genetic studies have identified a handful of genes that appear to be associated with scoliosis. However, these genes tend to be expressed across multiple different tissues and organ systems. So the biological mechanisms behind scoliosis have remained unclear. To really understand the biology, what we need is a good animal model for study. However, historically, we suffered from a lack of suitable models uh, for studying idiopathic scoliosis. A large factor that contributes to the progression of human scoliosis is really our upright posture. Our spines contain all kinds of natural curves and rotations, and the force of gravity pushing down on our spine can contribute to the progression of curves. But when we think about animals for study, most of these animals are quadrupeds. So they walk on four legs, and therefore the structure and the mechanics of the spine are very different from humans. So in the field, it's really thought that uh, these animal models were refractory to developing idiopathic-like curves, and that leaves the biology unclear. Huh, that is really interesting. And so how did you end up with a zebrafish model that's used in this paper? Why is this a good model for scoliosis? Fish are very interesting because unlike mice and rats, they naturally develop spinal curvatures with age, just like uh, humans do. And in fact, idiopathic-like scoliosis has even been observed in wild fish populations. Now, fish obviously don't walk on two legs, but it has been suggested that because they swim, you know, head first or forward through water, which is a dense media and offers resistance, and they beat their tail fins, that their spines experience mechanical loads that are very similar to humans. So that's in a head-to-toe or, in this case, a head-to-tail direction. Therefore, fish might actually prove more suitable models of human spinal disease. Zebrafish, in particular, have long been used in the lab to model human defects and disease because they're very tractable to genetic and biological studies. And in our labs, we have developed some of the first genetically defined models of idiopathic scoliosis. So these are fish that faithfully demonstrate all the hallmarks of human disease. So with these genetic models in hand, we've had a very unique opportunity to begin to study the underlying biology behind scoliosis. And what you found when you looked at this model was a role for cilia in the cerebral spinal fluid in the development of scoliosis. And I am emphasizing development here. How do these pieces fit together? Yes. So what we've demonstrated is that there's a critical role for motile cilia in uh, zebrafish spine development. So motile cilia are these whip-like appendages, and they grow from the surface of specialized tissues. And they act to beat and influence the flow of fluids uh, across multiple organ systems. So notably, motile cilia can be found lining the cavities or the ventricles of our brains and spinal cord. And the beating of these cilia normally play important roles in moving cerebral spinal fluid, or CSF, through these spaces. Now, our work suggests that irregularities in the motile cilia-driven CSF flow through the ventricles of the spinal cord is one of the underlying biological causes of idiopathic scoliosis across multiple fish models. So you're suggesting that the cilia that typically be in a pattern to move the fluid around, they're somehow defective and that's causing a problem with the development of the spine? Yeah, we, we think it's actually more the, uh, the flow of CSF itself. So there appears to be a very defined period when cilia and CSF flow are required. They're not required uh, during embryonic growth for spine development. They're not required at adult stages. 
but rather we only need motile cilia and CSF flow during adolescence when these animals are rapidly growing for normal spine development. Well, this is in zebrafish. Is there any genetic data or other clinical observations that suggest that this may be going on in people as well? Yes, there is evidence. First, there are multiple human conditions that are known to disrupt CSF flow. So these are things like neural tube closure defects, cysts that can develop within the spinal canal, as well as um, congenital defects called carrier malformations, where you have uh, the herniation of the brainstem into the spinal cavity. So all these conditions will disrupt CSF flow. And remarkably, all these conditions have been associated with high incidences of scoliosis. Regarding genetic data, human studies have identified a number of genes that appear to be linked to idiopathic scoliosis. But until now, the biological significance of these genes has been unclear. Intriguingly, many of these genes could directly function in the production of CSF signals, or perhaps even in the downstream interpretation of CSF flow. If this is a process that's taking place for people and that adolescents are, you know, experiencing this, does it suggest a possible path to treatment for scoliosis that doesn't involve braces or surgery? I want to begin by saying that there's still a lot of work to do before our studies can be translated into the clinic. However, in our paper, we have demonstrated that if we can restore cilia motility and cerebral spinal fluid flow, even after the first signs or the onset of scoliosis, that we can actually, in fact, block disease progression. So therefore, if we can better understand how CSF flow ultimately controls spine development and identify perhaps druggable targets in that pathway, yes, there certainly is a hope for future treatments. This paper doesn't just expose a possible mechanism for disease. It really points up a pathway for the development of the spine. Is this something that's really been explored? How CSF flow ultimately controls spine development is unknown, and it's a question that we're actively investigating. But we can't speculate. So as I mentioned, uh, human spine is prone to curvature. So even the act of standing upright can set it off. And you can imagine that puberty might be a particularly dangerous time for the spine because growth is not always symmetric. Our arms and our legs don't always grow at the same rate. And you can imagine if we have asymmetric growth of bones or cartilages or or muscles along the spine, that this could be very hazardous, initiating scoliosis. So we hypothesize that CSF flow through the spinal canal could provide some sort of intrinsic mechanism for the body to detect and to correct for developing curves. So as an analogy, if you can imagine water flowing through a hose pipe, you know, if there's a slight bend in the pipe, you see problems in water flow and abnormal pressure developing at the site of the bend. And the same might be true of CSF flowing through the spine, that changes in the distribution of signaling molecules or even the pressure differences at the site of the bend could allow the body to recognize a developing curve and to correct it. Great. Brian, thanks so much for talking with me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Brian Saruna and colleagues write about a potential mechanism for the development of scoliosis this week in science. Don't forget to check out The Pulse via your favorite podcast app. You really don't want to miss this week's episode. From tranquilizing chairs to shackles, the June 17th episode of The Pulse traces the development of mental health care in the United States through a visit to the nation's first chartered hospital, still in operation today. The Pulse. From WHYY in Philadelphia. Check it out. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.